Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is something I've been looking forward to doing for a very long time, and that is interviewing Michael Schur, best known as the creator of Parks and Recreation and then of A Good Place, also one of the original writers on the American adaptation of The Office. But we're going to talk instead today about moral philosophy. He's a very funny person, and he's written a very funny book, oddly enough, about moral philosophy. And I, I promise you that this will be interesting, more interesting than I just made it sound. Uh, and I'm thrilled about this. I actually am excited to talk to anybody about moral philosophy, but especially Michael Schur, who's kind of popularized it and made it something that, you know... It's like that spoonful of sugar medicine thing. Somebody should write a song about that. All right, we'll be back after the news. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the Go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevatinghealth. Hi, this is Colin. This is an interview with Michael Schur, the creator of two epic TV shows, Parks and Rec and The Good Place. I wanted you to hear it in full, so we're not going to have any pledge breaks today. I would ask that in return for that, you maybe consider making a donation at some other point. You'd call 1-800-584-2788, make a pledge, or go online at ctpublic.org. But I wanted you to not have to think about that during the coming hour so you could listen to what I think is going to be a very interesting conversation. Uh, Hello, everyone, and welcome to your first day in the afterlife. You were all, simply put, good people. But how do we know that you were good? How are we sure? During your time on Earth, every one of your actions had a positive or a negative value, depending on how much good or bad that action put into the universe. Every sandwich you ate, Every time you bought a magazine, every single thing you did had an effect that rippled out over time and ultimately created some amount of good or bad. You know how some people pull into the breakdown lane when there's traffic and they think to themselves, ah, who cares? No one's watching. We were watching. Surprise! (laughs) Anyway, when your time on Earth has ended, 
we calculate the total value of your life using our perfectly accurate measuring system. Only the people with the very highest scores, the true cream of the crop, get to come here to the good place. What happens to everyone else, you ask? Don't worry about it. All right. That is a character named Michael. I can't tell you too much about him in case you're getting ready to watch The Good Place, but that is a primary. I can tell you it's Ted Danson, and that is some of the premise of the fabulous series, The Good Place, being established by way of exposition. Joining us now to talk not about The Good Place so much, although relatedly about a fascinating new book he's written related to all that, is Michael Schur, TV writer and producer, creator of Parks and Recreation, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and The Good Place. His new book is How to Be Perfect, The Correct Answer to Every Moral Question. And we're also excited because he grew up in West Hartford. I grew up in West Hartford. He left. I didn't leave. We both played in Fern Ridge Park when we were kids, 20 years apart. And he can see archaeological evidence of my having been bullied. So it's just great to have you. Michael Schur, welcome to our show. Thank you. Who are these monsters who bullied you? And how can I avenge your honor? <laughs> no, that's not the way it works. You should read your own book. <laughs> oh, you're right. I'm sorry. Yeah. We can't do I stuff did, like I, that. I didn't learn my own lessons. All right. <laughs> so this is in very much an extension of The Good Place. And you've said that you, when you got done with the series, you weren't necessarily done with the topic. The Good Place is informed heavily by, by real philosophy and by genuine study of philosophy. So I think it might be fair to say, just by way of introducing you and this quest to the public, that if we lived in a post-pandemic society where horse-drawn Shakespeare and symphony troops roamed the land performing for people and there were no cars, you might not be the moral philosopher you are today. The breakdown lane comes up in Michael's speech, but it's really a fender bender that kind of got you started on all this. Yeah, cars in general, I think, are sites of a lot of ethical wrangling in my life. I live in Los Angeles, so I'm always in my car. But the event you're talking about happened in 2005. My wife was in a very minor fender bender. A cop was there, looked everything over, said, I don't see any damage. They went on their way. Then we got a claim from the guy she had bumped into at one mile an hour for $836, which was the cost to replace the entire fender. I got very upset. This was during Hurricane Katrina. I had a good friend who lived in New Orleans whose life was being sort of uprooted and I was just kind of not thinking clearly. And I made the guy a deal. I said, look, there's barely any damage. I can barely see a little crease in your bumper. How about I give $836 to the Red Cross Katrina Relief Fund and we call it even. And he was sort of like, I don't know, I'll think it over. And then I told the story. A bunch of other people started pledging more and more money if this guy wouldn't get his bumper fixed. And it ballooned to like $30,000 and I was getting all these media requests and it just kind of spiraled. It was sort of the first thing I knew of that went viral. And then one night, my wife and I were like, we feel terrible about this. Why? What are we doing wrong? What is, we knew we were blowing it. We just couldn't figure out why. And that is the first moment that I started reading philosophy. I talked to ethics professors. I was like, what is, well, I, I know I'm blowing it and just tell me why. And eventually I, we, I wrote the guy a check. I told him everything that had happened. He didn't know any of this was going on. I told him about the whole thing. I wrote him a check, paid for it. He said he might give some of it to the Red Cross. I said, you're under no moral obligation to do so, but thank you. And it just sent me off kind of spiraling into this world where I was like, you know, every day, not every day something like that happens, but every day we were faced with these questions where we're, our moral reflexes are kind of tested And it would be a lot easier to negotiate them if I had any idea what the hell I am talking about at any given moment. And that was sort of the 
the beginning of my interest in the in the subject of ethics. In a way, you had also started to do something that your characters do, which is maybe semi or not even semi overthink a problem, right? You had begun to sort of think about this whole question. A lot of people would have done a lot of different things with that situation, but, <laughs> but, but you kept layering things on it. And then, yes, you started asking philosophers and some of them are saying, well, you know, I mean, Aristotle would say shame is useful for exciting some. So maybe you're kind of shaming this guy. Maybe it's okay. Mm-hmm. And other people, I mean, there's a way in which there can be a point of diminishing returns, which we see in the characters on The Good Place, especially Chidi and Doug Forsett. We're going to come back to them near the end of the show. When you run too much energy through a small problem, but you react to that. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, one of my defining characteristics as a human being, I think, is that I'm kind of annoying. And the reason that I'm kind of annoying is because I tend to overthink a lot of things. And I tend to, this isn't like, I'm not bragging about this. I'm just saying like, at the time that this thing was going on, we didn't go anywhere where I didn't bring it up and start asking people, what would you have done? What am I doing wrong? What do you think of this? I, I mean, I remember being in a wedding like three months later and like going through the whole thing with my friend Dave and him going like, why are you still talking about this? This happened so long ago. So I, yes, there is definitely, there are diminishing returns. Like part of, part of what Aristotle would say is that like, there's a fine, there's a balance you're looking for in your life with everything. Right. And among the things you're looking for is a balance in how much you care about any one issue. You need to care the right amount at the right time in the right way. And then you need to move on or you'll get stuck in a whirlpool. So yes, the character of Chidi, for example, in The Good Place was a guy who so obsessed about making every correct decision that he was essentially paralyzed and never really lived his life. So you're always looking for moderation. And even in something like how much should I care about ethics, you need to have some kind of moderation or you'll go nuts. This occurs to a lot of different people, although there's sort of a backside or a reverse side to it. We're going to hear Michael again. He is, I I can tell you that he's a supernatural being. He's talking to another supernatural being uh, played by Maya Rudolph, who's more or less God, but in a judge's outfit. Here's them having, this is A1 Cat. I finally know what it is. Life now is so complicated. It's impossible for anyone to be good enough for the good place. I know you don't like to learn too much about life on Earth to remain impartial, but these days just buying a tomato at a grocery store means that you are unwittingly supporting toxic pesticides, exploiting labor, contributing to global warming. Humans think that they're making one choice, but they're actually making dozens of choices they don't even know they're making. Your big revelation is life is complicated? That's not a revelation. That's a divorced woman's throw pillow. I mean, this guy chose this tomato. Those are the consequences. You don't want the consequences? Do the research. Buy another tomato. So, Michael, sure, that's the flip side of what we just decided, right? That, in fact, you are under some obligation to think things through, even something as apparently minuscule as the purchase of a tomato. Yes, although what happens in that episode is that the judge, who is, like you said, a sort of God figure in the world of the show, eventually is convinced to go down to Earth, and she immediately comes back and says, oh, man, that place is a mess. <laughs> like she, actually, the actual way that Earth functions becomes obvious to her that it's impossible. And part of what the show is about, part of what the book was about, was really saying, like, if we're going to try to make better decisions, if we're going to try to be better people... We also have to acknowledge the insane level of difficulty 
that the simplest action requires of us. Like it, it's not anymore the case that we are just people milling around, making choices that are simple, binary, up, down, good, bad. Every single thing we do has a really complex ethical, like, you know, graph attached to it. And we often aren't even aware of the extent to which it is complicated. And when I wrote the book, I tried at least to coin a term called moral exhaustion, which is how I feel a lot of the time whenever I make a decision. And then someone says, how could you do that? That's so (laughs) terrible. How could you support this person or that politician or root for this football team or whatever, because of all of these bad things, it can be really exhausting to make the simplest decision. And so I think what I'm arguing for is like, learn as much as you can, make the best decisions that you can, but don't lose your mind in trying to be perfect because it's impossible. On the other hand, I think you also prove that moral philosophy, ethical contemplation can kind of be fun in a way. I mean, it can be paralyzing and exhausting. There's an entire (laughs) section of the book called, and this is really something that I personally struggle with on a regular basis, called, Do I Have to Return My Shopping Cart to the Shopping Cart Rack Thingy? I mean, it's all the way over there. And by the way, Michael, there's a whole other thing in the parking lot called the Cart Corral, which you don't have to go all the way back to the the thingy. There's a cart corral. Where, right. You know, you know, I don't know if they taught you about that at Harvard, but it's called a cart <laughs> corral, like Kamataya Yippee. Uh, thingy, thingy is so much more descriptive, isn't it? Like you, when I say the cart thingy, you know what I'm talking about. I get about. it right away, yeah. yeah. So so this is sort of an interesting question. And I, and I think a lot of people who are listening kind of fuss with it too. Like, I don't know, do I like leave it there by my car? Is somebody else going to have another fender bender because they hit this thing? Do I do kind of an Apollo Soyuz docking move where I kind of gently (laughs) push the cart, you know, into some other place? Does it mess up a pull through? Um, But it's sort of fun to think about this and try to come up with the right answer as opposed to just walking into the store in a state of peevishness. Well, I certainly agree. I mean, I think that these issues are incredibly fun to wrestle with. Some some people might disagree, but I, I think they're very fun and I think that they're interesting. And that was one of them that has always bothered me because I don't know what the rules are. Like nobody really says, okay, you have to, you're supposed to do this, right? And there, it's some people leave them in the space after they unload their car. And I think to myself, well, that makes sense because someone else pulls into this space and then it's right there waiting for them. That that there's a logic to that. And then I think, well, what if they roll and they bonk into a car and they put a dent in the car or you open your car door and smash into it? It's, it's just very unclear what the rules are. Some places have, have employees that are milling around and collecting them. And you think, well, okay, that's this person's job. So it's okay to leave them here. And then you think, well, wait a second, maybe they only have to hire those people because a bunch of selfish jerks are leaving their shopping carts all over the parking lot. And they would prefer that we didn't. So people think of ethics and moral philosophy sometimes as these enormous, heady issues that are about what the right move is and murder and arson and all these like enormous problems that we face. But really, I think on a much more regular basis, we are all facing these really mundane little problems, these really small questions. And the, the point of the show and now the point of the book is to say, like, let's wrestle with them. Let's try to figure out what the right move is here. And then let's try to execute whatever that right move is. And that will make the universe a third of a percent better. And that's something that's worth trying to do. I mean, one thing that I do in that situation sometimes is approach somebody who's getting out of their car and say, would you like this card? Particularly if it's a nice one. And if I don't have a hacking cough, you know. <laughs> um, and, and, and I do feel that a lot, there's a lot said about 
microaggression in this world. But I don't know. People don't really talk about microamelioration. But there mm-hmm. is a sort of way that you can do that, right? I, I read this thing about – you may have read it too. It's, it's, this is fairly recently. In Minnesota, one man paying for the car behind him in a Dairy Queen drive through resulted in over 900 cars also taking part in the pay-it-forward chain so that you – know, one car after another came up there and paid for the the car behind them. Then people right. people got involved. I think they went online and they were putting up like an extra eighty dollars here and there so that you know if somebody didn't have the money. I mean that's sort of in a kind of Rawlsian sense the world we want to live in, or maybe even a contractualist sense the world we want to live in. We want to live in a world where everybody's nice to everybody else, but we don't seem to get there. Yeah. I mean, those stories are wonderful. I love those stories. It's, you know, when I was a kid, my mom said to me, it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what the situation is. If there is someone behind you that's entering through a door, you hold the door for them. It doesn't like there's zero exceptions to this rule. And to this day, I always just like by rote, I walk through. And if there's someone behind me, I hold the door. And every single time, with probably 99.94% of the time, the person goes, thank you so much. And I say, mm-hmm. no problem. And then we go about our day. And I have the same thought every time, which is that one lesson that my mom taught me when I was five has led to like a total of, you know, in good place terminology, like thousands of points of goodness have come out of that because it's this the tiniest little thing you can do for someone else. And then you hear stories like the paying the toll booths or you hear during the pandemic, you heard, incredible stories of people saying, well, I'm young and healthy and this virus isn't as dangerous for me as it is for my neighbor. And so I'm going to go grocery shopping for my neighbor and just dropping off groceries or getting toilet paper or whatever it is that they needed. Those stories give, are the ones that give me hope because it, to me, it points to the idea that we do want to live in that world, that most of us want to live in that world and are willing to do extra things in order to try to achieve that world. And it sometimes it doesn't feel that way, right? Like there's plenty of counterexamples of awful things that happened during the pandemic or or behaviors that you witness in a day-to-day world that are discouraging and dispiriting. But I prefer to focus on the ones you're talking about and and to believe that what they mean is that at our cores, we want to live in that world. We want to be those people and that such a thing is achievable if we all try. Yeah, just before we go to a break here, I mean, my favorite thing in this book, I think, just because I didn't know anything about it, was a term called Ubuntu. I hope I'm saying it correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that the, I'm going to have you attempt to define it, even though you say in the book it really can't entirely be defined. But in a way, this African idea is kind of that idea of the world we're saying we want to live in. Maybe you could say a little bit more about that. Yes, it's a it's a it's sort of an ethos or a, a non, I guess a, it's a non-Western philosophy. It's mostly in Southern Africa. And Ubuntu, as I understand it, is essentially putting the health of the community and the people that you live near at the same exact level as your own health or care and, or happiness in terms of what's important to you. So there are a lot of phrases and aphorisms that sort of explain it. One of them that I really like is I am because we are. And it, it sort of is the idea that like if you if the people around you are not safe and comfortable and happy and have food to eat and have everything that they need, then you don't either in some way. And so there's a sort of other directedness or an extreme amount of empathy that it implies. And it 
And it sort of permeates the entire culture of a lot of the countries that practice it. And it, it has different words, different uh, meanings in different languages, but it's oh, it always comes back to that idea that it's that I and we are the same. Um, and that is a really lovely idea. And it runs counter, frankly, to a lot of what you would consider to be the foundations or building blocks of a lot of Western countries. Like the American spirit is very individualistic. It's very much like march forward and achieve and, and climb the ladder and all that sort of stuff. And I prefer the other way. <laughs> I just think that there's a, um, there's a real beauty in the idea of equating the health and happiness and safety of other people with your own. I think that's a, that's a much better way to live. I mean, there's kind of a version of that in Japan, too, the kind of a collectivist sense that, you know, that you, you wouldn't want to be a person who gave a communicable disease to another person if you could possibly avoid that. It sounds, right. like, it sounds like a kind of a low bar to clear when I put it that way. But, um, <laughs> but, but yeah, there's kind of that sense there. And one of the questions that got stirred up in me by your book is that question of, so if anybody is going to judge our, our moral worth— um, or we're going to judge our moral worth. To what degree is our moral worth a byproduct of values that are already baked in to the society that we live in? As you say, Americans are individualistic in a way that can be pretty toxic. Like, I'm not going to wear a mask because I don't happen to believe these things. And I heard something on Joe Rogan and, and I don't like masks anyway. I don't have, nobody can tell me to do anything. Uh, and so that person is somebody that you and I don't really care for that much. But right. it could be argued that he got to be that way because he doesn't live in Japan or Southern Africa. Yeah, look, it's never one thing, right? It's nature, it's nurture, it's society, it's upbringing, it's parents, it's friends, it's schoolmates, it's the history of the country in which you live. Like it, it, We are all the byproducts of hundreds of different factors that are all coming at us from the time we're born, from the time we're too early to even know they're coming at us. So that part of, part of that other directedness or that empathy which can be really hard is encountering people whose worldviews are very different from your own and trying to find the commonality. There's a there's a, a a theory I discuss in the book called contractualism, which basically is like, all right, two competing sides in a in a dispute, and you know, who are never gonna see things the same way. They they put down their weapons and they climb out of the trenches where they've been stalemated, and they sit around a table and they basically start pitching rules for their new society. And everybody gets a veto. So the rules that pass are the ones that don't get rejected. And it sort of is the way if everyone is being reasonable, which is kind of the key word, <laughs> if everyone's being reasonable, the rules that will define a society are the ones that everyone agrees to. It's sort of the the bare minimum. It's the it's the how do we just get along with each other um, out of necessity. So it's far from Ubuntu, right? It's it's not like let's treat other people as equal to our other people's happiness as equal to our own. But it is a kind of like, let's all be reasonable and let's all find the ways that, that we can agree on things, even if they're sort of minimal. So whatever the approach is, it's, there are ways to counteract the, the external factors that have guided us and, and formed us in a way that can mean that we can all get along a little better. All right. Uh, on that note, we're going to go to a break. Uh, we're talking today with Michael Schur. Uh, his uh, creations include Parks and Recreation, The Good Place. His new book is How to Be Perfect, The Correct Answer to Every Moral Question. We will be back.
Hi, this is Colin. I hope you're enjoying the conversation. If you are enjoying the conversation, understand that I asked this station and this company to suspend the pledge breaks from my show today so that we could present this essentially uninterrupted. I'm briefly saying, please call 1-800-584-2788. Maybe later today after you're done listening to this, because we're coming right back to Michael. 1-800-584-2788. You can say how much you enjoyed the show, or you can do the same thing if you pledge online at ctpublic.org. That's ctpublic.org. And yeah, that's a way of saying thank you for the Michael Schur interview. Thank you for not interrupting it. And we say thank you for supporting us. Oh, God. Michael, what did you do? I made the trolley problem real so we could see how the ethics would actually play out. There are five workers on this track and one over there. Here are the levers to switch the tracks. Make a choice. The, the thing is, I mean, ethically speaking... No time, dude! Make a decision! Well, it's tricky! I mean, on the one hand, if you ascribe to a purely utilitarian worldview... Okay. So, what did we learn? All right. That's three of the characters from uh, The Good Place. They are in very, very dramatic high-production fashion acting out a long-running philosophical debate known as the trolley problem. The trolley problem, first of all, I should reintroduce uh, Michael Schur is with us, the creator of The Good Place and Parks and Recreation. His new book is How to Be Perfect, The Correct Answer to Every Moral Question. And the trolley problem, it's been around a long time. The basic idea is you're on a trolley. It's a runaway trolley. It's going to squish five people, but you could hit a switch and send it off on a different track that would just squish one person. There are a lot of different variations, like who that one person is. It's like Aaron Rodgers. Maybe that's a whole different set of, of questions. <laughs> so, well, I have a lot of questions I want to ask you about this. Uh, but let me just begin with this. So Lily Tyson, the senior producer of the show, and I have been working on this outline for the show. And at one point she said, you know, I'm not that interested in the trolley problem because it doesn't seem like it really kind of comes up in my life that much. You know, I'm more interested in the questions of like, should you tell somebody they're wearing an ugly sweater? Although, I don't know. I, I don't know what your take on this is. I would argue that the trolley problem comes up all the time. It comes up fairly frequently because what's interesting about it, and I think the reason it has um, been around for so long and is so oft discussed, is it sets up two terrible outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. One of them is five people die. The other one is you make a choice and one person dies. So there's no version of success here, right? There's no, and Interestingly, when the pandemic first hit, a bunch of my son's sixth grade classmates had all watched the show and we were looking for things to do. And to keep them just occupied. And I ended up teaching like a mini class for like four nights. I had them watch a couple episodes of the show. And then I talked to them about the philosophers involved. And it was very funny to run through the trolley problem with a bunch of sixth graders because all they did is just look for loopholes. They were like, well, maybe I jump off the trolley or maybe I, <laughs> I, call the, I call the engineer and tell them to shut off the power. And I was like, no, 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 you can't get out of this. So I think that the reason that it is still of interest to people is because it reminds them of a lot of decisions in their own lives where no matter what they do, something bad seems to happen. I will agree, though, with the producer of the show, that there are other philosophical problems that I think do come up way more, like the free rider problem, I think, is everywhere. The free rider problem is essentially there's a there's another trolley, a different trolley, not the one that, that killed those people. And it's packed with paying customers and one person jumps up on the side, hangs off the side and gets a free ride. Is that okay? Is that not okay? And why? Because everybody still got to where they were going, but it doesn't seem right this one person didn't have to pay. That problem you see everywhere. I mean, that's the problem of 
someone, for example, not getting a vaccine in a deadly pandemic, but still wanting, relying on everybody else to get the vaccine so that they stay safe. Or a person who hears that water usage is restricted because of a drought and says like, well, everyone else will reduce their water, but I like my lawn, so I'm just going to keep watering my lawn. Those The free rider problem, I think, is everywhere. The trolley problem, the way in which the trolley problem relates to our lives, I think is a little more diffuse, but it's still, I think, a really good way to think about where you stand as an ethical person and which of the philosophies that I'm talking about in this book would appeal to you more or less. Yeah, they use it a lot still in bioethics. I mean, my argument for it would be, well, first of all, I mean, it literally is coming up with the programming of autonomous vehicles. Autonomous vehicles may ultimately have to make these kinds of decisions and they'll have to be programmed to, quote unquote, think about them some way or another. But I think also you just mentioned the pandemic. I I would say, and this is kind of borne out by a certain amount of work in bioethics, that vaccines are kind of a trolley problem in the sense that when you do vaccine trials, you don't 100% know what's going to happen to the subjects in your trials. But your your assumption is that even if they have some really bad reactions, maybe some people are going to die, whatever, you're, you're on a path in this case to save billions of lives. So you've got kind of a trolley problem right there. Is it okay, particularly if these people volunteer, <laughs> is it okay right. to do this? But even when you implement a vaccine, some people are going to have really bad reactions to vaccines. That just kind of happens. It's a very, very, very small number. And once again, you're going to kill, if anybody dies, it's going to be negligible compared to the billions of lives you'll save with the vaccine, except that can any death be negligible? Yeah, well, that's there's a philosopher named John Torek that I talk about briefly in the book who is flabbergasted at the idea that you would ever take numbers into consideration. And his thing is like, look, everyone's life is maximally valuable to him or her, which means that you can't just add some totals of lives together and have a more on this side of the scale than the other side. There are certainly people who ascribe to that view, and there are certainly people who would say that the, the numbers are irrelevant. Torek goes as far as to say if you're the captain of a boat and there's you're off the coast of an island, there's a volcanic eruption in the middle of the island, and there's you know one person at the southern end of the island who needs to be rescued and whatever, 50, 100, 1,000 at the north end of the island, that you should, in deciding where to sail, you should flip a coin because the numbers don't matter. You just, it's life, it's value, it's maximally valuable to that person and you can't just total them up. So again, this is why the trolley problem is interesting, I think is because it really gives you a, a good way to kind of investigate the theories that are, you know, that are big, the big three in utilitarianism and deontology and virtue ethics and anything else you want to throw in there And you can use it to kind of come to a conclusion about where you personally stand on a lot of big picture issues. So I could talk to you about this for a really long time, but I guess I have to keep this conversation moving. I do want to say that I feel like, you know, once I started thinking about The Good Place, I was thinking about where else does philosophy come up on on television. One place I think it actually does come up, and this is going to sound ridiculous, is Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is really kind of exploring, (laughs) like, what are the unspoken codes of society? What's okay to do? Do you have to bring a gift in this situation? Could you leave a party under these circumstances? I mean, he's kind of asking these questions all the time and seeking, you know, some kind of guidance or imposing his own twisted guidance on those situations. The other one, and I have no idea whether you watch this show, but I find Ozark to be really, really interesting philosophically, even in terms of the trolley problem. They had this come up, the Laura Linney character. Wendy had to decide whether allowing her brother to be murdered by drug cartel people was a choice worth making if the alternative was that more people, including maybe her, her children, her husband, might be murdered by the same cartel. I mean, 
you know, to me, they're operating in this kind of morally debased situation, uh, you know, from the beginning. But then within that framework, they have to make those kinds of choices. Yeah, both of those shows are absolutely philosophical shows, no question. I mean, Ozark is part of a, a long chain of of good shows, dramas with, that involve a person making a bad decision and then chasing it by making 10,000 more bad decisions <laughs> to try to get out of the first one. Breaking Bad comes to mind, right? It's like, mm-hmm. he says, well, he's dying. Walter White is dying. And I'm going to, I need to make sure my family is safe after I'm gone and I'm a chemist. So I'm going to make this meth and raise a bunch of money to pay for my medical bills. And then my kid's college. And then, then over the next, whatever it is, 60 episodes, he turns into like the most horrifying monster whoever walked the earth and watching that slow decline and watching those moral compromises being made is really compelling. It's a very compelling kind of arc for a character to face. And Ozark is a very much in that tradition. Kirby Enthusiasm is my is a is a my most favorite kind of philosophy because it's the philosophy of of the minutia of life. It's the it's these tiny things. Who gets the parking space? If you know Seinfeld had famously had an episode of who gets the parking space if one guy passes it and is trying to back into it and another kind comes up and is trying to head in, you know, with the front of his car. Those are the kinds of ethical questions I think we've all experienced. None of us are, most of us, let's say, are not drug kingpins in New Mexico or or, uh, or in the Ozarks. So, But m- almost all of us have faced the question of who gets the parking space when two cars arrive there simultaneously. And I really love that about Curb. I think its best episodes are the ones where he is examining those tiny little codes of behavior, those little, in, in, just infinitesimally small moments of negotiation between two people over the most boring stuff. Like that is a, that's a subject I think is well worth investigating. All right. Did Lily Tyson not mention that I am a drug kingpin? Good, because that. <laughs> no. no uh, all right. Well, little, congratulations. Little, no, a little hurt by the way you said it so dismissively. But um, all right. So uh, we're going to play another very, very short clip uh, from uh, The Good Place uh, because I think it's uh, another thing that, that gets into something you talk about in the book. Here we go. B1. So who's in the bad place that would shock me? Ah, well, Mozart, Picasso, Elvis, basically every artist ever. Uh, Every U.S. president except Lincoln. That sounds about right. So one of the things you wrestle with in the book is that question of of, uh, fruit from a possibly poisoned tree in the form of conception of the arts. Uh, You set yourself up as uh, someone who worshipped the work of of Woody Allen from a very young Mm -hmm. age, and now you're kind of having to wrestle with this. We're all doing different versions of this. So give us kind of your take about this, about to what degree you have to make moral choices about the art and culture you consume based on who created said culture. Yeah, that was the hardest chapter to write in the book, I would say. And because, first of all, we know more about the sorts of bad behavior we're talking about than we ever have by a factor of, I don't know, 10,000 or something like that. It, it's not a it wasn't dirty laundry wasn't aired in the same way, even 10, 15 years ago as it is now. And also because it's so pervasive and it's so in our faces that we basically if you don't if you're not a fan of someone who is problematic in some way or has done something problematic, it's simply because you just haven't read enough stuff about, about mm-hmm. the people you like. So that that question, how do you, can you separate the art from the artist? Should you, to what degree can you? It's one of the toughest questions that I think we face every day. I sort of draw my own conclusion, which is to say, look, there are lines we have to draw in our own lives of what we think is forgivable and what we think is not forgivable. 
as soon as we draw those lines, as soon as we say this actor or singer or director or whatever is, I just have to cut that person out of my life and never engage with that person's material ever again. But on this side of the line are some people who have also done things who I'm going to say, like, I can forgive that behavior and I can keep engaging with their art or music or sports or whatever. As soon as you draw that line, someone in your life is going to say, well, that's ridiculous. How can you support person X, but not person Y? The thing that person Y did isn't that much worse than the thing person X did or blah, blah, blah. And the temptation is to never draw the line to begin with because you are guaranteeing that you're going to be caught in some kind of contradiction. You'll be embarrassed. You'll think like, well, that's a good point. I didn't know that about person X and on and on and on. But in my opinion, the fact that there's no right or wrong answer here is not a reason to not try. The, the thing you have to do is think about your life and your belief system and your sense of integrity and all the things you value and care about. Figure out what is forgivable for you and what isn't. And then draw that line and potentially know that you're going to have to erase it and redraw it over and over as more information comes out, as time goes on, as societal attitudes about different things shift and change. And we now find certain things unacceptable that we used to find acceptable. It's okay to redraw that line. The thing you can't do is just shut your eyes and pretend it's not happening. That you, you, I, I believe that the mistake, the only real mistake, would be if I continued to watch Woody Allen movies and I just compartmentalized and thought, I'm not going to think about that. I'm not going to even put it out of my mind. I'm not going to pretend it didn't happen. I'm going to pretend there's no problem here. You have to, I think, keep both things in your mind at the same time. This person made something or, or sang something or performed in a certain way on the sports field that is, was really meaningful to me and helped shape me as a person. And also, this person is problematic and caused pain for whoever he or she caused pain to. And that the, the only real way you can blow it, I think, here, and it's a messy situation. It's not, there's, you're never going to feel 100% okay, but the only real mistake you can make is trying to pretend that one of those two things isn't true. Either that the person doesn't matter to you, that's painful when someone really matters to you. And it's also a mistake, I think, to say, well, I'm going to pretend that that person didn't do what he or she did. That, that you have to just juggle those two things all the time. And by the way, it makes it a lot less fun, right? Like that's why we don't want to do it. It makes it a lot less fun to watch those movies or listen to those songs or watch that team play on Sunday or whenever they play. But that is the that's just the deal. That's the 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 problem with loving people and things is that people are deeply flawed. They've caused pain and anguish for other people. And by following them, supporting them, rooting for them, you are sort of adopting them into your life. And you just have to make the space in your own emotional core and your own brain to remember that they are problematic. I think that's as close as we can come to any kind of solution for this problem. All right. So we have a thing that we use on this show, which I'm going to run by you. And you feel free to shoot it out of the sky. Uh, because you're you're Maya Rudolph in this context, you can you can decide. So we, we it's called the Slattery ratio. It's named after a guy named Brian Francis Slattery. And the Slattery ratio says this: uh, you, imagine sort of a fraction, and the top number represents the value of the artistic or cultural work uh, output uh, of a given artist. Uh, okay. And then the the bottom number uh, is the offense, the whatever the value we would place on the offense or offenses committed by that person. And if that results in a you know in, in a value larger than one, then you you keep the artist hanging around. So the problem with this 
as you probably already figured out, is so that let's imagine that Miles Davis and Kenny G have each done the same bad thing, the exact <laughs> same bad thing in the exact same amount. Under the slattery ratio, Miles gets to travel a little further down the line with us than Kenny G does, assuming that we, we think that Miles is a titan and that Kenny isn't. But I'd just be interested in, in, in even any of your thoughts about a ratio like that one. Well, I think the problem with approaching it mathematically or numerically would be that, okay, what if the contribution of the person is like a 354, you know, some massively important person so that the the numerator is enormous, but that person um, spent his entire life just torching buildings for sport and and, you know, murdering people, whatever. So that the bottom number is, you know, 353. Well, technically... <laughs> That's higher than one. So that person gets to stick around, even though the, that person's crimes are so horrific that you can't possibly imagine supporting him. Like, I don't think you earn points for good art and lose them for bad behavior. I think that there's a, this is, again, it's a personal thing. It's how much does this person mean to me? How important is this person's work to me? And then you kind of have to draw your own conclusion. And I think you will end up there at, with some people. You'll say like, well, look, yeah, that person... The denominator for person X is enormous because that person's crimes were significant or the bad things they did were significant. But that's the single most important artist in the world to me, whether whoever that is, Picasso or, or you know, Eric Clapton or whoever it is, like that is the most important person. That person formed my very identity. And so even though that person's crimes are significant, I can't just cut that person out of my life. Like I, I would almost say like, back into the slattery equation uh, after you do your analysis of what that person means to you personally. And if you end up, maybe it's a, maybe it's a sort of a litmus test, right? You say like, well, okay, now that I know where I stand, let me check it against the numbers or something like that. But I think starting from a place of just is number a, is the, is the art greater than the crime will lead you to end up supporting some people who have committed enormous crimes because they're such good artists. And I feel like that's not the best way to go. All right. Well, thank you for not completely canceling the slattery ratio. Anyway. <laughs> that was nice of you. Um, but you did poke some interesting holes in it. All right. We have to take a break. We're with Michael Schur. We just have a little bit of time left on the other side, and there's so much we want to talk about. So here we go. Time to say some thank yous. One to the infinitely patient Cat uh, Pastor, our technical producer. Uh, also, senior producer Lily Tyson is the also the producer of this episode. Michael Schur is here with us. Uh, he uh, is, of course, the creator of The Good Place and and the, the creator of Parson Recreation and, and lots of other stuff. And his new book is a book about moral philosophy, How to Be Perfect, the Correct Answer to Every Moral Question. So one thing that I wanted to ask you about is – 
comedy. And, and specifically, comedy is in some instances I, – I, I, I would grant that your comedy is by and large more gentle and, and affirming of people than a lot of comedy. But on the other hand, Michael – you have created in me a person who can no longer walk past a dry erase board and not pick up a magic marker and write Bortles, exclamation point, on that dry erase board. This is like 100 <laughs> percent your fault, Michael. Um, and so, so just to contextualize this, Blake Bortles, quarterback for a long time of the Jacksonville Jaguars. Uh, Jason, one of the four main characters or five main characters or six main characters uh, on The Good Place, uh, but one of the four people in the afterlife uh, is this totally befuddled and benighted Jacksonville fan. He never seems to grasp that they're not any good, and he never seems to grasp that that Blake Bortles, who's a real-life NFL quarterback, uh, is a quarterback of questionable abilities. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, <laughs> that required the show to be hilariously and repeatedly mean to an actual person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it did, yes. Uh, although, you know, look, the, there's a the phrase that you come back to all the time in comedies, are you punching up or punching down, mm-hmm. right? Like, punching down and making fun of people who are um, you know, uh, who are lower on the societal ladder is generally thought of as a bad idea because why would you do that? Blake Bortles was a very famous and handsome and successful professional athlete. Like we weren't saying, we were lightly, gently teasing him because he is the kind of quarterback that fans of a team will often put all of their eggs into that basket and hope that he's the guy to lead them to victory. And we were not so subtly pointing out that we didn't think that was going to be the case with the uh, Blake Bortles. The funniest thing about that whole thing to me, it started Joe Mandy is one of the writers was one of the writers for the show. And he thought when Jason at one point in a flashback threw a Molotov cocktail at a speedboat and Joe Mandy, who I think wrote the episode thought it would be funny if he yelled Bortles while he did it. And so we just sort of snuck it in and didn't think anything of it. And then we just kept going back to it and just having him say Bortles over and over again. And eventually we did like 12 jokes about Blake Bortles on the show. And one year, the the year going into our final season, Blake Bortles almost led the Jacksonville Jaguars to the Super Bowl. He had a phenomenal postseason and he was one half away against the New England Patriots from going to the Super Bowl. And I, I was looking at Twitter. I was first of all, I was thinking like, what are we going to do? We've been making jokes about this guy not being good for so long. What are we going to do if he wins? And then I was seeing all these people go, oh, my God, I had no idea he was a real person. Right. Like, I, By the way, they thought it was just a joke. You dealt that with that brilliantly. So. You dealt with that brilliantly, which is to have the Maya Rudolph character complain that the other characters were monkeying around with the fabric of reality such that all kinds of unexpected things that are not supposed to happen were happening. One of them was right. the success of the Jaguars and the Blake Bortles. I think she says he's almost kind of good, although the experts are debating that. Uh, yeah, she says she's kind of good now. I mean, there's some debate. It's confusing. Yeah. <laughs> but it is sort of an issue. Right? It's hard to be nice and, uh, you know, ethically, morally nice and do comedy. I mean, I'm a huge Tina Fey fan. I couldn't you couldn't find a bigger fan of Tina Fey's comedy writing of Kimmy Schmidt and 30 Rock. But, you know, if you made all of that nice and really thought about people's feelings and didn't turn Kenneth into some kind of, you know, stereotype of an Appalachian person or uh, or Jenna into a kind of a stereotype of a person who also grew up kind of working class, uh, you know, assaulted maybe by, by her stepfather or something. I mean, there's a lot of joking about stuff that people don't even want you to joke about anymore. 
I love yeah. all of that, but I mean, it, it's got to be a problem. I mean, the nicer you try to be, the more things you have to pull off the table. True. And also there isn't any comedy without some kind of edge somewhere, right? Like that's the the point of comedy is to find that edge and kind of walk along it in a dangerous and interesting and funny way. So comedy is and has always been in the business of offending people. The question is, who are you offending? Like if you're offending people who have traditionally been you know, uh, overlooked or ignored or whatever, then, then you're part of the problem. If you're offending people in power, you know, like my first job was SNL and the ethos SNL was born out of Watergate and Lauren Michaels's aphorism for what the show is supposed to be is we are suspicious of everyone in power. It doesn't matter whether it's a Democrat or a Republican. The show is, uh, takes a position that people in power are suspicious, not to be trusted and are to be mocked. And so you don't feel that cruelty usually at on SNL. Sometimes you do. Sometimes like every other show, they step over the line and they do something that's offensive or bad or whatever. But generally speaking, like if you're if you're talking about the president and U.S. senators and these people who are at the top of the uh, of the ladder in terms of power and status and authority, well, too bad. That's you. You want to get to the top of that ladder. That's what you're going to get. You're going to get people mocking you and making fun of you and calling you a hypocrite and whatever else. So, it's just a question of context. At some level, it's like there there is no comedy without anger and without edge and all that sort of stuff. And the question just becomes: Who are the targets? And are the targets? Do the targets deserve the, the what you're throwing at them? And as long as the you can say yes, then then you're fine. I always liked uh, Matt Grenning, pre-Simpsons, when he had the comic strip of Life in Hell, uh, was asked about the two characters, Jeff and Akbar, who are identical. They wear these kind of Charlie Brown shirts and fezes, and people would say, are, are they twins? Are they gay? Are they Muslims? Are they?" Uh, and and Grenning, <laughs> Grenning would say, whichever possibility offends you the most, uh, <laughs> which I think is a great answer. It's a good answer, yeah. Um, so we've only got about two minutes left. And I, I do want to bring up a thing that you did here. Like I'm sitting not too far away right now from where you and I both grew up and the park that we both loved. And so you want to explain what you did with Fernridge Park? You only got about 60 seconds to do it. But. I received an email a while ago that there was a, a movement to refurbish some of Fernridge Park. And it is the park that I played in my house on Walden Street in West Hartford. Um, the backyard led right down to the tennis courts. I spent my entire childhood there. And so I said, yeah, sure, of course, I would love to contribute to that. And I donated some money and um, earned the right to christen uh, the the walkway um, that goes around uh, the duck pond, where I have many fond memories of feeding the ducks. And so it's now known as the Leslie Nope Promenade, uh, Leslie being the main character of um, Parks and Recreation. And so it was my little way of um, taking this thing that I had written about, which is a Parks and Recreation Department, albeit in Indiana, and transferring it back uh, to my hometown and making a making my hometown park look a little nicer. Right. No, I, I walk there occasionally with my dog, Declan, and it's beautiful now because it goes, it connects to the Charlie Kaufman footbridge, uh, which then <laughs> goes into the John O'Hurley reflecting pool. So like oh, all, perfect. Yeah. all the West Hartford <laughs> comedy legends are, are represented there. Uh, Michael Schur, so much fun to talk to you. The book is great, too. I mean, I can't uh, say enough about it other than to say it's called How to Be Perfect, The Correct Answer to Every Moral Question. Thanks for doing this today. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm a good, such a good, real good.